All right, well, today we are continuing with the fourth part in our series on the letter to the Philippians. In part one, we brought an introductory message that focused on how this assembly of believers came into being and was founded. And we saw that they were a group of believers who responded to God's word. They experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and they stood firm in the midst of difficulties and persecution. And then in part two, we looked at chapter one, verses one to 11, and we talked about how God wants our love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we can have godly discernment in our lives, so that we can be pure and blameless on the day of Christ and be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. And then last week in part three, we looked at verses 12 to 14, and we saw that you can't chain up God. You can't chain up the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can chain up or restrict God's people, but God will do what he wants when he wants. Now, as we continue this week, we're going to look at verses 15 to 26. And as we do, keep in mind some of the themes that run throughout this entire book. Relationship, unity, joy. Paul demonstrates joy for us in real life. And then also remember Paul's situation. He's in prison. We think it's his first imprisonment in Rome that's described in Acts chapter 28. So would you now bow with me in prayer over the word of God? Heavenly Father, please give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in our life and give us faith to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we left off last week with verse 14, which says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, that was very encouraging. I mean, the Holy Spirit keeps moving. God does what he wills, when he wills, and the gospel is being proclaimed by followers of Jesus, even though one of their leaders had been locked up and put in prison. So that's encouraging. And it was encouraging to the Apostle Paul as he sat in prison. But in the next verses, Paul says something that is absolutely shocking and surprising. I mean, and and he says it with such calm nonchalance that it just about leaves me speechless. Let's look at it in verse 15. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, wait a minute. What is going on here? Some are preaching Christ out of goodwill, but some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. I mean, uh, how does that make sense at all? I mean, what in the world is going on here? So let's see if Paul sheds a little bit of light on this in the next verses. Going on, in verse 16, he says, The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of of the gospel. So the idea is there were, there were some people who, who loved Paul and, and they loved Jesus and the gospel and they, and they saw Paul being locked up and they were saying, well, if he's going to be locked up, then, then I really need to step up and begin proclaiming the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were doing that out of love. But he goes on and says, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I I'm in chains. Now, this is absolutely shocking to me. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for Paul to deal with that. I mean, think about it. He's in prison. 
He doesn't know how that's going to turn out. I mean, I mean, he thinks maybe he's got a good case, right? I mean, it looks like everybody knows that he's not in prison because he's a lawbreaker or because he's an insurrectionist or anything like that, right? So it looks promising, but you know what? You never know with the Roman emperor. I mean, he could have you put to death just because he doesn't like the way your face looks or because he has indigestion that day or because he's in a bad mood. So you never know. And it says here that in the middle of all of that, there are some people who are preaching Christ with the specific motivation of stirring up trouble for Paul while he's in a prison waiting for his appeal. So, I mean, that's just wrong. I mean, it's shockingly wrong that anyone who names the name of Jesus would act this way. You know, there have been a couple occasions in my 30 years of ministry or so that, you know, some people maybe tried to stir up some trouble. I mean, either for me personally or for the church that I was ministering in. But that has largely been the exception. I mean, I find that most followers of Jesus, most people who, who love Jesus, I mean, they're not interested in stirring up trouble for anyone. They love the body of Christ. They love the people of the church. And they just don't want to stir up any trouble. But every once in a while, someone just gets something stuck in their spirit and, and they want to stir up some trouble. But as difficult as those occasions can be, I've never experienced anything like this. I mean, like what it was like for the Apostle Paul here. I mean, who would do this? I mean, who would act in such a way? Who were these people? And so um, some people jumped to the conclusion that these were the Judaizers. You remember the Judaizers? I mean, those were the people who believed that if you were a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and you wanted to follow Jesus, you wanted to be a believer in Jesus, that you had to be circumcised and obey all of the law of Moses as well. Essentially, they believed that you had to be, become Jewish in order to be Christian as well. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them. And eventually, ended up in an entire council in Jerusalem to decide this question as the Judaizers insisted that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. But all the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem rebuked that idea. It's only through Jesus that salvation and forgiveness and new spiritual life come. It's the same grace and love for everyone, Jewish people and Gentiles alike. It all comes through faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in spite of that decision, that didn't really stop or slow down these Judaizers. They, they, would, they would come into a church after Paul had been there and begin teaching people and throwing them into confusion with their teachings and undermine what Paul had been teaching them. And so we see in several of Paul's letters that he would have to refute the teachings of these Judaizers. And even later in this letter, he would deal with these teachings. And so uh, a number of people just kind of assumed that it was the Judaizers who were causing trouble for Paul here. However, it's most likely not them. There's a good reason to think it was someone else. So look at the next verse. Paul says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, Paul never rejoiced at the preaching of the Judaizers. He rebuked it. He came into to sharp disagreement with them. Uh, he called them false teachers, and he warned the churches to avoid them and their ideas and their teachings. So um, 
this was not the Judaizers. And here it says that um, Christ, the genuine gospel of Jesus, is being preached, and, and he's rejoicing at it. So it's not the Judaizers. Uh, it's someone else. And my best guess is that it's probably those people in 2 Corinthians that refer to themselves as super apostles that Paul had to deal with, and they seem to be very impressed with themselves and their ministries, like they were something great. It might be them. And so it looks like these are people who are preaching a message that is consistent with Paul's message, a message that Paul agrees with, but whose motives were all wrong. It's the actual gospel of Jesus being preached, but the motives are a hot mess of problems. So what would motivate them to do this? What would motivate them to preach in such a way as to stir up trouble for Paul while he's in prison? Well, Look at verses 15 and 17 again. He says, Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and out of selfish ambition. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. You know, these are some of the most destructive motivations that can grip the human heart. And they destroy relationships. They destroy trust. And they lead to some of the darkest motivations and most destructive actions. Envy. I mean, these people envied Paul's position, and they were jealous of the influence that he had among the people. They viewed themselves as his rivals. I mean, we shouldn't ever view other people in ministry as our rivals. I mean, think about it. Jesus said that the harvest is is plentiful and, and white under harvest, but the laborers are few. And the idea is that there's so much spiritual work to be done that there aren't enough laborers to accomplish it. We should never view other people in ministry uh, as our rivals. But these people viewed Paul as being in their way, as, as someone to be overcome or to be beaten. They viewed the ministry of the gospel in terms of their own personal advancement. And they weren't thinking about the advancement of Jesus the way the Apostle Paul was. They were motivated by selfish ambition, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. You know, in his letter to the Galatians, um, Paul put envy and selfish ambition listed among the acts of the sinful nature alongside such things as hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and dissensions and factions. And then in Corinthians, Paul lists these things alongside of discord and jealousy and fits of rage and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorder. Jesus himself lumped them in with sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, slander, arrogance, and folly. And he went on to say that these evils come from within the person, from within inside a person, and defile them. Envy, selfish ambition come from within inside a person and defile them. Solomon said that envy rots the bones. Finally, James said that where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And as we continue looking at our story and at this letter, we find that every evil practice is exactly what happened. It looks like whoever these people were they, were, they were preaching in a manner that was designed with the intention of drawing the attention of the Romans and the emperor in particular so that they would begin to think negatively about Paul. 
That, that is, that they would stir up trouble for Paul while he was in chains. And apparently the aim was that they would either leave him in prison or worse, that they would have him executed. And then with Paul out of, out of the way, that would give them more space for their perceived ministry. Now, that is really dark. That's a really dark place to be. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition don't mix well with Holy Spirit ministry. If you're going to be effective for Jesus and if you want um, your life and your ministry to produce anything that lasts for eternity, you must serve Jesus with humility, putting the interests of Jesus and others first. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul's going to talk about in the next chapter, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So, so let's look at our, our text again, looking again at verse 18. Here's Paul's response. He says, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, this response is amazing. I mean, it would be only natural to do everything in his power to defend himself. But he doesn't even name these people. I mean, he could have named them. He, he could have called them out and, and warned all the churches, hey, watch out for these people. Their motives aren't, aren't really right. I mean, he could have defended himself. But instead, he just kind of drops it. And he rejoices that the gospel is being preached. And he's going to leave uh, dealing with all of these motives to God in whatever way that he'll choose to deal with them. How? How in the world can he do this? Well, it's really in the next verses. Let's look at them. Going on, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through the prayers, your prayers, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's relying entirely on God. He's relying 100% on Jesus. His hopes and dreams for his future, they're not tied up with what anyone else is doing or not doing. They're not even tied up in his own abilities, in his abilities to preach, or uh, in his abilities as an orator, or, or even in his position as an apostle, or any other earthly thing. His hopes and dreams for his future are tied to the only thing that cannot be taken away from him, his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, every earthly thing can be taken away from us. I mean, sometimes relationships can be lost, people die, stuff can be taken away, but Jesus lasts forever. And the only way to have joy in a situation like Paul's, the only way to have joy when you've lost everything, is to fall completely in the hands of God, where you are holding nothing, and he is holding you in his hands. His faith, his hope, his trust is entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to see just how deep this faith goes, because it's not faith in an outcome. It's faith in Jesus no matter what. Going on in verse 20, it says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, 
Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, uh, wait a minute here. He just said in the last verse that he hopes that this will turn out for his release, for his deliverance. Right? But now, uh, he says that he's going to exalt Christ either by life or by death. Because his faith is not in an outcome. It's in Jesus no matter what. Now, how can he do this? How can he face this? How can he experience any joy in the middle of all of this? Well, look at the next verse again. Verse 21. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. For Paul, everything is about Jesus. If he lives, if for Jesus, he says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. If I live, it's not about me and my ambitions and my desires and my position. If I live, it's about Jesus living his life through me. And if he dies, he says, that's gain. And the gain is Christ. The gain is Jesus. It's not just rewards. It's not just a mansion over the hilltop or even eternal life. As great as all those things are, that would be shooting too low. The gain is Jesus. To have him receive you and and embrace you and look you in the eye and say, welcome home. Well done, you good and faithful servant. What's happening with Paul? He's hearing the call of heaven. He's hearing the call of Jesus from heaven in his soul. He even went on to say in the same letter that I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And then going on, he said, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's how Paul was able to deal with the challenges he was facing. And that is what will enable us to deal with all of the challenges that we face right now, and in our future. So as we conclude, would you just pause with me for a moment in some prayerful reflection and let the Holy Spirit search your heart for a minute and ask Jesus, you know, has life for me been more about myself or about Jesus? Maybe pray something like this. Dear Jesus, search my heart. I'm sorry if there's been any part of it that's been more about me than about you. Help me follow Paul's example so that for me to live is Christ. Would you take just a few seconds? And then, if some of you sometimes experience fear or uncertainty about the future or or even about death, you know, I'm going to invite you in a minute to just pray one more time. And, uh, you know, everybody dies eventually. But the more important question is, where are you going to spend eternity when this life is over? 
For the follower of Jesus, there's an assurance that we will spend it for him, with him forever and forever. And I want to give you an opportunity. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't been walking with him in, in faith, I want to give you an opportunity to begin to do that even today. You know, Peter said that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the apostle John said that this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, we can't save ourselves. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. I could never be good enough to measure up to God's holy standard. He is holy, and the truth is, we're sinful. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That is spiritual death away from God for all eternity in a place called hell. But God didn't want that for any one of us. Because that verse goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so if you're going to be good with God, if you're going to be, to be right with God, you need to come to him in repentance and in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are ready to do that, if you are ready to begin a walk with Jesus, or maybe you're deciding right now to come back to a walk with Jesus, would you bow in prayer with me right now? I'm going to lead us in prayer. It's a prayer of repentance and a prayer of asking Jesus to be our Savior. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I confess I can't save myself. I don't measure up to your standard. I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Please be my Savior. Be my Lord. Help me walk with you and grow in you every day of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. My friend, I can tell you with all the authority of God's word, if you did that, then God has done everything that you've asked him to do. And I want to encourage you to grow in your relationship with him every day. This, this prayer isn't the ending point, and it's not just some fire insurance. It's the beginning point of a day-by-day walk of faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Get in the Bible, begin to read it even five minutes a day, start in the Gospel of Mark, and you'll be amazed at how God is speaking to you in ways that you could never have imagined. And then pray a little bit every day, even if it's just for five minutes. God wants to hear from you. And then tell someone what you did. Maybe go to our website, LancasterFirst.com, and fill out the Connect card and let us know. Or or better yet, even just put it in the chat. And uh, we're going to put something in the chat for you right now that will be some resources that can help you grow in your daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, would you all now just bow in prayer as we close this service? Heavenly Father, thank you for everyone who's been here for this service. Pour out your grace and your blessing on each one. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.